The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every Respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week we finished a section of Hebrews that began in chapter 3, verse 6, and extended to chapter 4, verse 13, in which the author relied heavily on Psalm 95 in order to help us appreciate our solidarity with the people of God in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. We have been rescued from slavery to sin. They were journeying toward the promised land of Canaan. We are journeying toward the promised land of heaven. Some in the wilderness wouldn't trust God. They wouldn't believe that God could deliver on what he had promised. And so they turned away from him in disbelief and died in the wilderness without entering the promised land. And the point the author of Hebrews has been making is don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts to the promises of God, lest you, like they, fall away. The issue in the book of Hebrews is that of apostasy, of deliberately and definitively rejecting the truth that you once professed. And the author of Hebrews' burden in writing this letter to these people who are facing suffering and are tempted to turn away is that they will not do so. Last week, we looked at chapter 4, verses 11, 13, where we learned that the word of God is living and active, that it is powerful, that it will accomplish the purpose for which God has given it. We learned that the word of God is sharp and it cuts deep. It will expose what is going on in our hearts. There's no hiding from it. Now, think with me for a second about where that could lead us. Do not harden your hearts the author of Hebrews says, but we know how hard our hearts can get. You know how hard your heart is maybe even now. Persevere, the author of Hebrews says, but we know how quickly we fall away. The word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, but do we really want to go there? So this week, the author shifts his focus. He picks up where he left off in chapter two and begins a section that is really the heart of the letter. It extends from chapter four, verse 14, all the way through the first half of chapter 10. It's a section in which he demonstrates the superiority of Jesus's priesthood to that of the Old Testament priests. Now, if you have felt anything of the burden of the author's concern as you made your way through the first part of Hebrews, up through last week in chapter four, verse 13. If you felt anything of the gravity of what he's been saying to us, that if you feel anything of what it means to have your heart hardened and know that you can't 
hide before God, that you can't do anything to keep yourself from hardening your heart even further, that, that the word of God exposes your heart and, and therefore you don't even want to pick it up anymore because that only perpetuates the problem and sends you cycling ever deeper into despair. If you, if you feel that tension this morning, then you come to this passage and you think, why is he changing the subject? Why is he leaving us hanging? Why are we talking about priests when I'm still stuck in the wilderness? What hope do I have? He's not leaving us hanging. He's telling us about our hope. And it all centers on our high priest, Jesus. What we need to hear and take to heart is that our confidence can never be in our ability to keep the faith. You've heard that phrase, right? Keep the faith. Next time somebody says to you, keep the faith, just go ahead and say, I can't and neither can you. Our confidence, our hope is not in our ability to keep the faith. It's in keeping our eyes on the one who will keep us in the faith. And that is our high priest, Jesus. So there's three things I want us to see as we consider our high priest, Jesus Christ, this morning. First, the help he brings us. Second, the sympathy he feels for us. And then third, the hope he gives us. So help, sympathy, and hope. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would use this portion of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart that we might come out into the open before you, the one who sees and knows all, and yet has made a way for us to be reconciled to you, to be accepted by you through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, do that work in our hearts this morning. For some of us, afresh, because we've hardened our hearts and forgotten these great and glorious truths. And Lord, for some of us, we pray for the very first time that we would look to you in faith, resting in your promise, secured for us in your son, in whose name we pray, amen. So first, let's look at the help that our high priest gives us. The help is told to us at the end of verse 16. Let me just read it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our high priest offers us help in the form of mercy and grace. How is it that he's able to give it? Well, that's what this section is about. So turn back to verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament had two jobs. Sympathize with the people and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Those are the things that he was called to do. They were human. They could sympathize with the people. They understood the human condition. They they sinned, they suffered. Like, like all of us, they had to deal with the fear of death and like all of us, they too would die. So they got it. But once a year, they would enter the Holy of Holies. They would enter the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and then later the inner sanctuary of the temple and there they would atone for the sins of the people. So what did the high priest see when he went into the Holy of Holies? And, and what precisely did he do? Well, well, first, before he could even go in, he had, to, he had to make atonement for his own sins. So there was a sacrifice that had to be 
made, and then he had to wash and cleanse himself with water. And then he would enter the Holy of Holies, and there he would see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments that had been broken because of the people's sin. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, on on either end, there were two angels, two golden cherubim or angels, wings upswept, faces looking down toward the law that was contained in the ark, these representatives of God. Between the gaze of God and the broken law of God, there was a tray that was known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled. So the high priest wearing a a golden ephod with 12 stones, and each stone had the name of one of the tribes of Israel, so he could represent the people before God, would go in there and would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which would satisfy the wrath of God for his people, and there God would meet with them. That's what he said in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. There at the mercy seat, where the blood of the sacrifice has been made, to atone for the sins of the people, to satisfy my wrath, there I will meet with my people. That was the job of the high priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is our great high priest. He entered the true temple. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The high priest could only go once a year into an earthly replica or copy of the heavenly temple, and then he had to leave. Jesus, our great high priest, went into the very presence of God in the true temple, as it were, and there he makes intercession for us. And he makes intercession for us forever. He is the son of God. That point is driven home for us in verse 14. Since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Even right there, we're gonna see how Jesus, who the author of Hebrews, whenever he's talking about Jesus, he's making sure we understand something of the humanity of Jesus, and yet he refers to him here as Son of God to remind us of his deity. Jesus, the Son of God, eternally is present before the Father interceding for us. In fact, the author of Hebrews is gonna drive that point home in chapter seven, verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just think about that for a second. Jesus always lives. He is standing before the Father even now interceding. There's that great uh, hymn um, that goes, five bleeding wounds he bears. He bore on Calvary. They make effectual prayers. They, I should have looked this up. They plead, they plead for me. Yeah, you get the idea, right? There's Jesus by his blood offering prayers and intercession for us all the time, unfailingly. Even now, Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. And even now, in a way that we cannot get our minds around, he is praying for his people. Jesus is the true and greater high priest. 
he offers us help that's unfailing. But secondly, he sympathizes with us. There's a sympathy that he feels that the author of Hebrews wants us to take to heart. So look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Old Testament high priest, as I mentioned earlier, could sympathize with the people because he himself was human. And this is part of what makes the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas so glorious, so wonderful. Jesus Christ became man. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, two natures, one person forever. He understands what it is to suffer because he suffered He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was despised, he was rejected, he was abandoned, he was mistreated, he was tortured, he was killed. He understands the human condition. He knows what it is to suffer. He has sympathy with us. That that word sympathy is a word that simply means a verb to suffer with a prefix with. Jesus suffers alongside us. He suffers with us. He gets the deep discouragement that you're feeling right now. He gets the bone-crushing despair that you may be feeling right now. He gets the debilitation that comes with suffering. He gets the loneliness that so many of you who experience those kinds of things are feeling right now. It feels as if no one else really gets it. Oh, they care, they love you, they do your best to speak words of encouragement to you, but unless they've really been in it, they don't really get it. Jesus gets it, and Jesus cares. In fact, this is all present tense type stuff. We have presently a high priest who is presently able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. His heart is no less open to us now than it was open to those who walked with him or met him along the way. The heart of Jesus is filled with sympathy for those who suffer. Last week, we saw our solidarity with the people of God in the wilderness. The author of Hebrews is driving home the solidarity of Jesus with us. So he gets us in our suffering, but he also sympathizes with us in our temptation. Now, does that mean that Jesus was tempted in every single way? Let me go back and read the passage again. This is in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Does that mean Jesus was tempted to spend too much time on his iPhone? I mean, come on, right? We're not talking about every single type of temptation. We are talking about, I think, what's at the root of so many of the things that tempt us, and that is the desire for comfort, desire for power, desire for control, desire for security, desire for the approval of other people. If you push back through those 
you know, kind of the surface level things, the things that, that, that tempt you, the, the too much screen time or, or looking at things on the screen that you shouldn't be looking at or any number of things that are, you know, unique to our day and age that, that just weren't unique to that day and age. And you think about the things that are behind that, those deep idols of the heart that tempt us to act out in those kinds of ways. Jesus understood temptation at that level. You go back and read the wilderness account of Jesus when he was tempted by the devil. You go forward and read the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he approached the cross. And in both of those settings and in ways that aren't necessarily recorded in between, Jesus faced those same temptations of power, control, comfort, security, approval, all the things that the human heart might seek for and in sin grasp for, Jesus understood and yet was without sin. And he gets temptation in a way, quite frankly, that we don't. I've mentioned this before. C.S. Lewis pointed out that in the same way that a person walking against a stiff wind will at some point lay down because the wind is just too strong, Jesus never laid down. The wind of temptation blew and blew and blew on him. When it blows on us, we give up at some point, every one of us. We give in. Jesus never gave in. Our high priest is able to help us in our time of need. Our high priest is able to fully sympathize with us in our need. But third, our high priest gives us hope. Look again with me at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence to draw near. What is it that makes the throne of grace a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment? After all, that's what we deserve. Every one of us deserve to come before God and find before his throne only judgment. Only the wrath that we deserve because of his sin. Some of you here this morning are yet in a place where if you were to die today, you would be standing not before a throne of grace, but before a throne of judgment. What will enable God's presence, God's throne to be for you a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment? It is only the sinless perfection of the sacrifice that is Jesus. Unlike the Old Testament high priest, Jesus is without sin. Unlike the Old Testament high priest, Jesus offered his own blood. Remember the mercy seat with me for a second. That tray that was on the ark of the tabernacle where the law was placed with the angelic gaze of God, as it were, looking down upon the mercy seat between the gaze of God and the broken law, the blood of the sacrifice was placed. The mercy seat. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word mercy seat is the word that's translated in the New Testament, propitiation. Propitiation. It's a word that's used to describe, like the mercy seat, that which satisfies the wrath of God. 
And in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the Apostle Paul uses that word to describe Jesus. Jesus is the one whom God put forward as our propitiation, as the one who would satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus is both the mercy seat and the blood that's on it. That is who Jesus is. If you want a picture of what I just said, go read John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, you have Mary coming to the empty tomb. We've moved from Christmas and the incarnation of our great high priest to Easter and the empty tomb. Mary looks in on the empty tomb in John chapter 20, and what did she see? Anybody remember? Two angels, one at either end of the place where Jesus' body had lain. The tomb was empty. The wrath of God had been satisfied. Jesus, our mercy seat, is where God meets with people now. Look to him in faith. Find in him not not merely forgiveness of sin, as, as amazing as that is, but find in Jesus the very glory of God. Because it's in the face of Jesus Christ that the glory of God shines brightly. Look to Jesus in order to know God. Our high priest is able to help us in our time of need. Our high priest fully sympathizes with us in our need. Because of his sinless perfection, our high priest gives us hope. So what do we do? Two things the author told us, two points of application in this passage. The first is in verse 14, and the second is in verse 16. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, persevere. Persevere by faith. Persevere not by looking at your own strength and your own ability to persevere. Persevere by looking to Jesus and your confession, the the things that are true about him. Now just think about what the author of Hebrews has been saying to this point. Jesus is greater than the angels. His word concerning who God is is greater than anyone else's testimony or word concerning who God is. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He is greater than the entire system of law in the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Joshua, who led the children of the Exodus generation into the promised land of Canaan, that was just a prefiguring, a picture of what is to come. Jesus is the true and greater Joshua who leads his people into the rest of heaven. And here, Jesus is the true and greater high priest. He is the one who made full atonement for our sin. Persevere by faith, but then verse 16, pray with confidence. Let us, he says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How do we draw near to the throne of grace? In prayer. If if last week was about the power of the word, Please realize that what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that there is great power in having the benefit of being able to come before the living God without fear. Tim Keller once said, the only person who can enter the chamber of the king at 3 a.m. is the king's son. The only person who can come before a holy God with confidence, with hope, 
knowing that he will receive us and hear our prayer is those who have found that in Jesus, the throne is no longer a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. Persevere by faith, pray with confidence. Your high priest, even now, is interceding for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to to live out the truth that you have given us in this passage, that we will with confidence draw near to your throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Or some of us here today are, are just ready to give up. We, we think about the hardened heart that we've been hearing about throughout Hebrews, and, and we find that our hearts right now are so hard, and we feel like we're ending 2023 just gasping for breath. And we think, man, we better whip ourselves back into shape so that we can be right with you. Start 2024 on a high note. Oh, Lord, would you help us to see the folly of such thinking? to receive instead the truth that's contained right here in these words that were just read, that we can approach you weak, wounded, tempted, hardened though we are, we can come to you and know that in Jesus, you will receive us and hear our prayer. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.